The prophet Isaiah declares that long ago the Lord performed mighty deeds and delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage through the waters of the sea. Now, the Lord is about to do a new thing, bringing the exiles out of Babylon and through the wilderness in a new exodus. The first reading is from Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Writing to the Christians in Philippi, Paul admits that his heritage and reputation could give him more reason than most people to place confidence in his spiritual pedigree. But the overwhelming grace of God in Jesus calls Paul to a new set of values. The second reading is from Philippians, the third chapter. If anyone else thinks he had a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 20th chapter. The scribes and the chief priests. Oh, I'm at the end. Wrong one. And he began to. T- I'm excited about this one. Here we go. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he and he let it out to tenants, and he went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. 
He sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is the gospel of our Lord. Every once in a while we get a Bible lesson that when you're done reading it and you say the words, the good news or the, the gospel of our Lord, and it's kind of an awkward moment because everything you just read was harsh and uncomfortable. And at the very end of that thing, then you guys say, well, the good news. And so, hey, one more time for these guys. Thank you for your work. Today was one of those lessons, and so as we go through this talk, keep looking for ways that God, with His love and His goodness, is behind things and supporting things and under things, and you'll see as as we do this, a really deep and profound love of God for God's people that will not be compromised by the behavior of God's people. So as we get into this, we're Luke chapter 20, um, fifth week of the season of Lent. A couple weeks from now we have Easter. But right now in the Bible lesson, it's the Wednesday of Passion Week. All right? So on Friday he'll be crucified. On Sunday he'll rise. That'll be the Easter experience. But on Wednesday he's in the temple area and he's teaching. He's talking to people. All day Wednesday. Actually an all day Thursday. Chapter 20, verse 1, it says that this, the day just before on a, on a Tuesday... We have a cleansing of the temple, that he is throwing out all the businesses that were illegitimate there, that they are desecrating God's house with their, their greed and their behaviors of oppressing and, and temple business that was not giving God any glory. So he cleanses it out so that the next day when he goes there, he can bring himself in the God's good news and do that message. So on Tuesday, he cleans house. On Wednesday and Thursday, he's going to teach in that house. He has a direct confrontation with all these established powers though, on that Tuesday. And it was like a straw that would break the camel's back. It was the last assault in their minds that Jesus had against their way of being leaders there. Their historical establishment as God's people and this whole religious cult institution that they had of, of having offerings and sacrifices and, and buying forgiveness and just the business of that whole event that was there at Jerusalem. All their earth traditions, they were being exposed by Jesus powerfully over three years. But on those days, on that Tuesday, in a big way that would not be reconciled. 
They wanted him dead. Many warnings had preceded over the last couple, three years. They would always tell him, don't do this. Or, no. There's a lot of inside pressures and, and intimidations and manipulations being put at him, but he stayed his course. He would never compromise those ways. He stayed way true to his Lord and true to us in love. And so he had to do it. He had no option except to expose what was wrong and to clean the house, even if it would kill him. Even if in two days he'd be killed with all the other Passover lambs to be the sacrifice for our sins. He couldn't change course regardless of the people's response. He spends Wednesday and Thursday in the temple courts teaching, and they're listening eagerly. Boy, they, they, they are very excited about what happened. Just, just on Monday, he entered, and there was a big procession, and they're hailing him as the king, and the Messiah to come, and the king of David, and the one of David. They're, it's a great experience, and there's a lot of good energy in the city thinking that, man, at last we have our king, we have our Messiah, and he's here. And this is, this is a Passover that won't be like any others. What a great time to be in the city with the millions of other people there. That was the energy they had on Monday. Now, they also saw the exposure of the, 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 the system on Tuesday, but now on Wednesday, they're back in there. And with that energy and that excitement all in the air, Jesus gives them this parable. Crushing, shocking contrast. This parable is very important because it's going to have the people look back about 2,000 years and see what God's been doing. It's going to have the people look to see what's going to happen in the next couple of days. Because in the next days, he's telling them, you're going to have me killed. I know what's going on. He, take, he already identifies it. And then he also saying going forward, oh, by the way, there's going to be a destruction upon this place. And after all that destruction, this vineyard, this good news of God is going to be given to new tenants. That's all happening in this parable, and it's all happening in that context. They will be new tenants. Now, you think about the parable and tenants and, and owners. It would have been exceptionally common to talk about. Very common. They were in an agricultural place. Now, if they had flat ground, they were going to grow grain there, corns, wheat, whatever it is. They grew grain on the flat grounds, or they grew grass for the animals, but mostly the grains that they could. And on the hillsides, the other places, they would move all the rocks off the hillsides and make terraces so that they could have vineyards. And they would put all those rocks to the edges and have so they had the vineyards in the middle. So they do this, this vineyard metaphors very well, these examples very well. And they also knew about tenants and being owners because a lot of people didn't have the opportunity to have land. Something had happened in the history where they had lost their land. And so now they were working for someone. So it was a very gracious act that the landowner would say, yeah, here, you get to have my 500 acres, grow whatever wheat you need to use, whatever you want to use. Just give me like a couple of truckloads and you keep the semi truckload, tractor trailers of it. You just give me like a thousand dollars and you can keep whatever else you make above that. It was generous of the landowners. They had enough and they're letting the people have the opportunity to work hard on a land that wasn't their own, to treat it as their own. And if they had a lot of profit, they could keep it. Just give me some for in exchange for this. And it was generous and they were, they knew the system. They understood the system, and it was working very well, and they appreciate it. So now comes this story. The owner goes on a journey, and in their world, journeys didn't happen really fast. I, I, I got on a plane and left Dulles, Washington, and landed in August, or Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and it took about 16 hours, flying time, triple sevens. They get there fast, right? Them, if they want to travel 100 miles, it could take a while. And if their bodies are tired and they don't move really fast, it could take even longer. So if you go on a long journey, it could be a long time. And they knew that well. 
So you got the agricultural thing going on. You got the idea of journeys taking a long time. Now enters the shock of this parable. Literally, it is shocking to the ears of the people listening to this. Jesus tells them that when it's time to uh, to receive the portion of the of the vineyard's pro- pro- produce, that they they send the, the the slave, the servant, away empty. And on top of that, they beat him. They maul him. It's shocking. You would never do that. That is a shameful response upon people who work upon the land that harm. They're shame. This is not shaming that one owner, but they're shaming the whole group that works like that, right? It's unacceptable. It's criminal. Criminal conduct to send someone away like that. And the idea of beating and punishing and belittling and shaming, they just didn't send them away empty-handed and refuse the money and the produce, but they maul this person. The word that we get the word traumatized from is the word that they use. They traumatized this person, who they were in just about every way, and they sent them away like that. Shocking. Now, it's curious, and this is a timeless truth that's being exposed with this as well, is that the tenants at that time, like the people who are, who are engaged with sin at the time, just about any time, any place, they don't see it. They're so consumed with what's going on in their world. They're so consumed with how they judge it, how they think it should be done and ought to be done and all that other stuff. They don't see how they're erring. They don't see how they're hurting and how they're mauling and doing that stuff has any effect. They're just engaged in their agendas. But the other people watching, when they see what's going on, they say, this is horrible. All the people listening to that parable in that first section are saying how horrible that those tenants would act that way. But the tenants, they don't see it themselves. That's a timeless truth for which some of us, all of us in some way or another participate because frequently I don't see my sins. Frequently I don't see how I hurt people. I don't see how my ways could be wrong. And I'm sure that you're like me and some of those, we all do it. And that's being exposed here. Jesus is saying it happens to us all. And then the next thing is, coming back to the tenants and the farmers, um, this is going to display, and this is where you can see God's love in this. In this story, more shocking than these tenants who have been gifted, if you will, an opportunity to work on land that's not their own and have all the benefits of that, more shocking than their mistreatment of that is, is the owner's patience. That is just almost beyond their capacity to think about it. How could an owner... Having his servant come back beaten, mauled, and traumatized by this ugly group of people, violating all this stuff in a criminal way, how can that owner give him another chance? The fact that the owner didn't come in there and demand vengeance, right, and justice was was like blind-blowing. So when Jesus asks the question, what shall I do, that follows three examples. He sends one slave servant and they do that. He sends another one. They do it again three times. That is just crazy. What shall I do was his question. It wasn't just to, it was actually literally for you to answer. If you're the owner and this is your land and those people are treating you this way and they're treating your, your friends and your servants and your family members this way, what would you do to them? And the whole system knows they need to get in trouble. Right? In jail with some punishment or something, but they, they, they get it. So now it goes from shocking to more shocking to absurd. It absolutely makes no sense. The next thing is, that's not what the owner does. 
The owner has looked at what these people have been doing to him, and he gives them one more try. It's like, are you serious? You're going to give him another chance? Man, what are you thinking? Yes, he says, I'll send them my son. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the slaves that he sent, they didn't respect because they're just like them, right? They're just one of, the, they're just one of their own. You don't respect people that you know very well. No prophets that received in their hometown. If you know someone very well, oh, they're just so-and-so. You can dismiss them. But no, if you send the son, right? They won't look down on the son. They might look down on the servants because they know the servants, but not the son. So the owner sends the son. They will give him respect and treat him as if he has an authority, and they know who the son is. They enter into a discussion. This is thoughtful planning at this point, how they're going to come against the son. This is premeditated murder. You drive down the road and you're in an accident and someone dies. Okay, that's one level. This is, you've thought about it. You've planned it. You know what's coming. And you knew how you're going to get this and you're going to kill him in this way. Premeditated, these people have engaged this son. Because they want to have control. They don't want to give control to land. This is a control issue at level one. At level two, they maybe thought it was about greed. Because if maybe the, maybe the, the, the veteran owner, the dad, maybe he died. And since the dad can't come to collect it, he's off in this faraway place. So maybe the, only, the next person in line is the son. And maybe if, if there's our greed, if we kill this son, it will be ours. So the first level is control. This is my stuff. This is my way. This is how I want it done type of stuff. That's one level. The next level is it was a greed level. They want it for themselves. Control and possession. And they kill the son. Shocking. They kill the son. Talmud says that if three years pass and the owners do not come and engage in the land or collect the land, it becomes the property of those who are working on it. So they kill the son. It comes the next question, question number two. This is to everybody who's in the room that's listened to this. What is the owner going to do to them now? What's the owner? What should the owner do to this people? And the folks listening to this, they don't answer. But Max, this, this story shows up in Mark's gospel, almost unchanged. In Matthew's gospel, mostly unchanged. The only addition being Matthew's gospel, the distance is this part. Jesus asks the question, and, he, and we get their answer. In Mark's go- or Matthew's gospel, the people answer that question. When he says, what should I do as the owner with, with these people? Matthew's gospel says, the people says, bring those wretches to a wretched end. And lend the, or lease this land out to other vine people, other vine workers. They answer the question, but we don't get that in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells us the answer. And as soon as Jesus tells them that destruction is going to come upon these people fully, and it will be lend at least out to somebody else, as soon as he says that, their response is surely not. It is the most loud aggressive, complete form of saying no that the language permitted at the time, the word combination here. When they say surely not, there's not a bigger no, woe, or anything else available to them in the language. Surely not, screamed with a voice, surely not. Why? Because they understand and they've gotten the idea that they are those people. They are those people, those wicked tenants. Whoa, they're panicking. They're the workers. 
They're the unfaithful ones. They're the disobedient ones. They're the rebellious ones. They are the ones they're misusing and mistreating and not giving respect to God's servants. Blasphemous. Their lives are not reflecting God's holiness. When the world sees them, they're not seeing the holiness of God. When the world is seeing them, they're seeing the greed and the consumption and all the other evil things that they're living in. And that's a bad representation of God. And so wipe them. And they pronounced it, and now they get it that they're saying that upon themselves. For 2,000 years, when he meant reference to the past, for 2,000 years, God has been sending special people into the lives of his people so that he could call them home, that they would return to the Lord your God, that they would confess all the things that they've done that were wrong, and that there, that God could love them and forgive them and restore them to a right relationship. For 2,000 years, he's been sending people to do that. For 2,000 years, he's been trying to turn people away from a sinful life and a life that they're enslaved to this world. He's been trying to do that. More than three. This parable that he gives is is three. Just three. But many have been sent. Think about the hundreds, potentially tens of thousands of pastors, of prophets, of priests that have been sent on behalf of the Lord. And every time... It's almost across the board. Every time they are sent, they get the same response. You think about specifically, think about Jeremiah, think about Ezekiel, think about Amos, Zechariah, Micah. There is hostility to their truth every time. God's people tells the people the truth. God sent one to tell the people the truth, and the people don't want to hear it. They fight against it, and they want to wreck it. A lot of different expressions on how that happens, but that's happening in here, and Jesus is calling it out. And after that last prophet spoke, we've had 400 years of quiet. 400 years, no prophets were sent to this people. From the time the last one came till the time John was born and was doing his work, about 400 years. There's been a prophetic silence. And what we get in here, if you read in Matthew 23, 30, and 33, you'll get that the people think, well, because of the 400 years in our 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 excellence and maturity of culture and our maturity of thought and our evolution of cultures and stuff like that. We've ascended to the place we would never act like our forefathers did. Oh, not us. We know better. If if we get another prophet of God, we're absolutely going to just love that prophet. And if he says turn, we're going to turn to exactly where the prophet points. And it's going to be different with us. And Jesus says, no, it's not. Matthew 23. Wishful thinking. He's telling them in advance in this parable that you're going to refuse to humble yourselves to my words. You're going to refuse to be, have a servant heart. You're going to refuse to repent, to confess, and you're going to refuse to be saved. My hope in Jesus, God would say, my hope is that you would be saved. That's why God sent him. He didn't send Jesus to condemn us, but the world would be saved through us. That's John 3, 17, right? He sent him so that we wouldn't be condemned, that we would have life. His God's hope, his plan for each one of us is that we be free from the junk that enslaves us, from the stuff that crushes our hearts, the stuff that takes all of our time and our resources and our, and our energies and consumes our thoughts and our life. He wants us to be free and have that with him. He wants heaven for us. Heaven with Him now and heaven with Him for all eternity and perfection. And that's what Jesus is trying to set up. And He says, no, it's not going to be the way He said it because right now I know that in the next two days you're going to shout, crucify. 
this same crowd is going to shout, crucify, crucify, crucify. And because of that, 40 years afterwards, the city was wrecked. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children inside the city, protected, thought they were going to be protected by the walls, burned and killed. The city was leveled. Only a small portion of things even remain even today. And, as the parable says, not only will they be destroyed, but he will give the tenants, he will give this property and all this stuff to the next batch of tenants. So then that gets to us today. What about the, what about the tenants? What about the opportunity? Well, we're the next batch of tenants. Jesus has been training up tenants for three years. It's work. If you want to be one of the tenants on this land, you've got to know that you're going to have some work. You're going to have blessings like you've never seen before. That's part of being gifted with this land of this owner. You're going to have blessings like you've never seen, but you're going to work for it because there's work engaged. You give God your work and he gives you blessing. You give God. Your... It's a beautiful exchange. Not because I have to, because you want to. So in this exchange, we are those tenants. We have been hired in baptism, if you want. That's one of our contracts. In baptism, you are made, you are named, you are washed, you are cleansed, and you are adopted. You're called his sons and his daughters. You're not renters, you're owners. And then from there, with the Holy Sacrament of this communion, you are forgiven, and he's poured his blood into this dirt, this earth, so that we would produce beautiful fruit. He's given us his word, which then leads us to the next piece about the stone. But for us as the tenants, we've been, given, we've been given the Holy Spirit. He's poured out everything so that these tenants can produce like never before in history. For 2,000 years, they failed all the time. But maybe now, maybe after sending the Son and maybe after sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and His Son would make a difference in this batch of tenants' lives and they would not do what they've always done before. That's what's going on with this. That we will produce sons and daughters and fruitfulness of faithfulness that we will let the whole world know the good news. And they says, then there's a stone. The stone is Jesus. And this was the closest thing I could get to something that has really straight edges. And well, it's pretty good because it is the Holy Bible. So if this is Jesus, he gives the cornerstone. That's what he's explained on this, the cornerstone. One edge of this is, is, a, is a straight line, and Jesus gives a straight line. He sinks this, and the whole house is going to be built off. The whole mansion is built off of this cornerstone. Off of this straight edge, you'll put a plumb line straight out, and that will tell you how to lay your wall so that it will be flush to this. You won't rotate the rocks this way or this way or any other way. You'll build it flush with this, straight plumb to this. That is how Jesus lived with us. You love people the way you love yourself. That's how you love. You want to be my disciples? You want to know what this kingdom's about? If you want to know what being a tenant going forward in this kingdom's about and how to be fruitful, you love like Jesus loves. And it shows up in how we interact with each other. We will forgive. We will raise each other up. We will notice. We pray for forgiveness when we mess it up. But this is our line. And then the other part of that line on this stone, on the other wall, is this edge. And that's how we deal with God. He says, you will love your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If he says yes, it's yes. If he says no, it's no. Exactly what Jesus would do. So he gives us two beautiful lines on how we interact off of this stone, which is his. And then we build off of that. Not only did the disciples go out this way and this other way by the thousands, but then here's generation one. Stack on top of that, generation two, generation three. We are a hundred generations past Jesus. If you go about 20 years a generation, we're about 100 past. 100 stones have been stacked upon this example of Jesus to be his house, 
to house, house all of his people and have a big place for them all to come home. He gives us that as an illustration, as an example of what it means to be a tenant. It wasn't by accident that he has the parable here and the next thing about the stone here because we are the tenants. We are to be those living stones. Living stones. You see the love of God being poured out in that example. He does not want trouble. He wants freedom and heaven. He wants us to participate in it. The opposite of hell, heaven. So it comes to us today. We have this thing that we've, we, we adopted as a congregation last November to know Jesus. The disciples did that for three years. They worked. They followed. They did what Jesus did. They learned to pray. They learned to serve. They learned to give. Even when people wouldn't say thank you, they poured themselves out with Jesus for three years. So they learned that part, know Jesus. And right now, this gospel is going to end with ascending to make people make Jesus known. Because some of the last messages that they get in Luke's gospel is that you are my witnesses. Slightly different than Matthew's book, right? But in Luke's book, he says, you, you, every one of us here baptized, because we're now in the prophet line, right? Everyone here, we are to be his witnesses. And our witnessing is this, to call people to repentance, to call people to forgiveness, that we would proclaim good news that in Jesus we are forgiven. We don't proclaim ourselves and say, look at me. No, because I make, I make mistakes. You know, we get their attention. We point to the cross. And everybody who is a tenant, which is a baptized, communing, word-listening person, we are now to be fruitful in that world. All of this and so much more off of a parable in his last days on earth. Having heard all this stuff, oh God, help us be as prophets. Help us to be prophets today. Help us to be honorable tenants today that will know him and then will make him known. God, help us be his church. Amen. Let us declare our faith. We will use the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of Son, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and who was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sin, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Friends in Christ, I urge you all to joyfully lift up your hearts to God and pray with me as Christ our Lord has taught us and freely promises to hear us. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. O Lord, Christ is our cornerstone and the rock upon all our hopes rest. 
Bring to completion all that you have begun in us. Grant to us all things needful and profitable for our salvation, that we might be the people in whom you delight. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. Strengthen and guide this congregation in faithful worship, loving fellowship, generous outreach, and holy living. Make this place a true sanctuary, a place of safety, refuge, and home for all souls battered by sin, sorrow, and suffering. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. Lord Jesus Christ, we rejoice today with those who are celebrating birthdays, anniversaries, or other joyful events. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. There are so many people who hunger for healing and thirst for reconciliation, who long for encouragement and seek understanding, who desire forgiveness, comfort, faith, and hope. Refresh them in the wilderness of their suffering, Lord, especially those named in prayer requests and those we name silently. Help them find peace in knowing that your face is shining upon them. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. Blessed Savior, you designed your church to be the home of all people. Help us to follow your calling to live as your disciples, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. Help Emmanuel Lutheran be the hands and heart of Jesus in northwest Arkansas. Put the name and face of someone that needs you this week into our heart and mind. Help us to reach out to them in love. Hear us, O God. Your mercy is great. O Lord, we thank and praise you for all your goodness. We commend ourselves and all for whom we pray to your merciful care. We boldly pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We'll continue our worship with our tithe and offering. <clears throat> 